we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we have the immense pleasure of welcoming Danielle Fröbel on the show. So Danielle is the, the co-founder of the agroforestry branch of Matadolobu, a 2,800 farm in the Guayas region of Brazil. And this farm produces soy, uh, soybeans, corn, um, other beans, and also has a, a pig fattening operation. Um, and they've decided to diversify with Centropic Agroforestry. And, and we're really interested in this because it's quite a good follow-up from the last conversation we had with, um, with um, uh, Mark Leiber, who introduced us to Centropic. And today, Danielle is going to show us how they are scaling the Centropic system up to a 50 hectares on the farm. So, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome on the show. Hey, Dimitri. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Awesome. I really look forward to, to this conversation. From what I understood, you know Mark, right? Yes, I got to know him in, in Portugal. I just can't quite remember if it was like two or three years ago. But yeah, I got to know him. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That's really cool. And um, so, you know, one, the first thing I want to ask you, and I think is, is important also for our guests to know, is who is managing the Instagram account of Matadolobo because it is just phenomenal and I advise all of our guests right now before they get before they start to open their phone and to check it out and to look at some of the pictures because it's going to give a lot of visual information as to what we're going to be talking about today. Well firstly nice to hear never anybody said something like that. <laughs> um, no, I'm sure I'm sure they have it's so good there's so much info um no we're just uh it's me and my wife we're just managing it spontaneously like at the beginning i did did lots of posts but nowadays i i really got lazy of of instagram so so my wife is doing all the work and sometimes i just uh going into the fields or filming something and then i give the photos and everything to her and then she she just processes it and yeah but it's all, all her merit nowadays. Nice. And I wanted to also tell our, our listeners that we wanted to, to, to get you and your wife on a, a together. But as you had told me, your, your wife doesn't speak so good English, right? So, we're, so we're, we've ju we're just with you at the moment. Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, yeah, maybe you could tell us a bit about how you got started in agriculture, in agroforestry. How did you end up, you know, having this, this, this epic project going at Matadolobo, maybe giving us a bit of context as to, what, you know, as to the story? Okay, <laughs> it's going to be a long story because uh, I actually, I was born in Germany, right? I'm, I'm from Berlin. I'm, uh, I'm originally an urban guy. <laughs> So I, I studied in Germany. I studied environmental and resource management, and then I I went into 
agricultural economics just out of out of interest and during this uh these studies i had like an exchange semester in brazil in the university of sao paulo and that's where i got to know my my wife her name is maria by the way and amazing uh, so we got we got to know that, and then her fa her her father he has like he's the owner of Mata do Lobo, right? And that's when I really first set foot uh, on a farm. It was in in 2013. I really didn't have any idea of agriculture or I don't know of all the the practical details of agriculture. For example, I I drive through brazil and i wouldn't i wouldn't know what a soybean looks like <laughs> i was really like a nobody you know i didn't know anything so yeah but then in, in 2016 we decided to to get married and then we decided also to move to brazil and maria's father gave us this this great opportunity to to work at the farm mata do lobo right and at the time it was like a complete 100% conventional farm like a grain farm and so we started working there and uh we just like operating and and helping helping my father-in-law right we just saw like the immense amount of of like agricultural inputs that i used there like uh pesticides all kinds of uh fertilizers and it was really impressive because like the list of products that are used nowadays in in brazil and tropical agriculture is like wow it's like it was really a shock to us you know and especially what it means in terms of uh, dependency also for the farmer right and and what this means for the for the profit margin too like the farmers really really just in 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 many cases just barely surviving right and the big money is made by the <laughs> by the by the fertilizer and and pesticide companies so the first intuition uh, when we got there and we we moved there we we started living on the farm uh the first intuition was uh like let's find a way to get out of this dependency right because it's really i don't know it, it brings a really bad feeling to be dependent on so much stuff and so we started studying like uh various uh various forms of different different agriculture and then yeah like after a couple of months we stumbled upon uh this uh this course that was offered this workshop that was offered uh by i think uh at the time it was namaste namaste is a pretty famous agroforestry guy in brazil and so we started uh we applied for this workshop and then we started uh studying about centropic agriculture right and so that's where it all started and like we really fell in love with the idea you know especially with the idea to build like a, a complex uh, agroforestry system that is uh, completely independent from from any input, you know. And so, 
yeah, we started studying, started studying, and then we started talking to my father-in-law. Ah, if he could give us like some land to, I don't know, to test some stuff, to to practice. And then he would just say, "Oh, I have this plot here, fifty hectares. Uh, <laughs> if you want, you can plant uh, by the end of this year." And we were just totally, I don't know, totally overwhelmed because ah, fifty hectares is quite a lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but for him is like just this uh little piece of land you know and so we got really uh, i don't know we got really overwhelmed and we uh somehow got in touch with Ernst Goetsch right we 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 talked to him and we convinced him to uh to come down to the farm and give some ideas to us to my father-in-law and yeah that's where it all started so we we worked uh, worked out some designs with him and and decided that we that we going want to go into coffee production so coffee production as as how do you say as the as the main as the main yeah as the main cash crop of the of the agroforestry okay very interesting mm-hmm. and I, i'm just curious because you know when you talk about complex in tropic systems that's very different agricultural approach to conventional corn and soy rotations and so i'm mm-hmm. uh, if even there is rotation so i'm curious as to what you know your father-in-law and he i'm sure he has a large team there what were their initial um thoughts about you know having such a massive paradigm shift of course on a small plot but i'm curious as to how that culturally you know sat for him no, actually for him, I have to give like a huge credit to him because he, he was surprisingly open to this. And we, we even went to visit a farm in Sao Paulo state. That's also quite famous. And Ernst worked on, on this farm, like to, to start, uh, uh, to start scaling centropic agroforestry. It's Fazenda da Toca. It's, it's really quite famous. And so we visited this farm and uh yeah i think he just he just saw there ah ah maybe it's possible it looks really good and and most of all maybe we can do even better <laughs> you know and he just wanted to ah, if you guys like it okay then just do it but do it like really how do you say in an uh let's do it a hundred percent you know let's don't just ah try da, 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 da. no let's do it like full on you know and that uh, uh, r- reminds me of uh, conversations that I had with my father when we were starting mm-hmm. Mazi Farm as well it was like you know uh, the same kind of uh, approach uh-huh. I guess it's interesting yeah. it was. but then oh but then that's my father-in-law but then if we talk about like all the the workers and neighbors and we have for example uh, a good friend here and in the city of Rio Verde. And we were talking about this idea and he just said, ah, I can offer you something like in two years, if, if everything goes wrong, I can, I can borrow you some machines to, to rip out all the trees again and plant soybeans. (laughs) So I think that sums up like the, the the, uh, the the mean opinions like of the people in the region right 
So it, but that's the beginning, right? It all over the years, the dynamic quite, quite changed a little bit. So uh, I'm, I'm curious as to the objectives of, of this agroforestry plot. Were you really looking to do something that's, you know, economically viable and kind of maximizing, um, um, let's say, optimizing the economics of agroforestry for that plot? So were you looking to do more something um, kind of to learn, kind of research-based to... Actually, let's say the main objective, like, which we are still... It's, of course, economics. We want to create, like, a, a large-scale system that is economically viable. But there are, like, some sub-objectives that are, are quite different, I would say. For example, like, uh, it was really, um, how do you say, if you, if we talk about complex syntropic agriculture, like, uh, Mark Leiber was talking about, you use like really thousands and thousands of, of specimen on, on one hectare, for example, and like really an immense amount of species, right? Like, and like in a real, in real, in a really, dense dense plantation and if you do that it's quite easy in my mind and we tested this as at first like in in really small scale plots like let's say 100 square meters and something and it's really easy to achieve like uh input independency right so you do the system i ah, maybe at the beginning you fertilize it but you in some cases you don't even need it and the system just works on its own you then you prune the system you prune the trees you res, with that you uh, accelerate the uh, organic matter uh, recycling right and the system just works on its own so now we want to do it on large scale we need uh, for example for the coffee production and for uh, for the managing of the uh, organic material we need to we need machines right like for example we need a tractor to pass between the lines and we need to simplify it's really hard to work with uh, i don't know 100 species on a 50 hectare scale and like manage it somehow mechanically so a really big sub objective is uh, to find uh a system like a prototype for our region, right? Which uh, which is economically viable, but also doesn't need an input like on a long scale, you know. So the question is: uh, by how many species, by how much plant density, we can we can simplify the system so that it still works uh, independently and doesn't need any any disease control from from outside or any fertilizers right so that's it's the big question <laughs> yeah for sure no it makes a, a a lot of sense and but it's it's some people will will kind of be be kind of shocked or impressed to hear that you can have a system that is is this really complex system you're talking about that doesn't require um any inputs yeah. to work and so I, I'm just going to ask you to reconfirm that. Is that, you know, is that something that you've really, you've experienced there on your land in, in your context that things just work like trees, fruit trees grow and produce in that kind of context? No, I, I totally can confirm it. Like the, the plot, 
the oldest plot. It's like five years old, right? And it's a small scale plot, like 100 square meters. And we planted it. Uh, it was our first, our second plot. The first uh, didn't go so well. So, <laughs> and then we rethought everything and like did it in, uh, let's say, had more luck or planted more densely, uh, adapted our whole planting system there. And it is possible. And I, until now, I didn't, I didn't use any fertilizer, anything. But it's the it's still it's the small scale plot, right? And we also we also made some soil analysis, and it's really interesting because the the organic matter content like really increased. I think it's uh, it's eighteen percent or something, and the phosphorus amount is like really insanely high on this plot too. And it got confirmed by uh, university too. So there was a master student that came there and and like took some soil samples and took it to the professors and they were like, ah, but it's not possible. Uh, take take it again. And you know, it's really surprising. But wow, yeah. And then again, on the large scale, it's a whole different story. We are still like uh, I call it like a, a transitioning system. Because we are still um, applying some fertilizers, it's it's certified organic, right? So we we use compost, we use manure, for example, like in the first year, because for example, coffee is like really is like really um, dependent on some on some available nitrogen at the beginning, so we have to to use some some other fertilizers. And so how many years in that, like, let's say that in this transition system or the larger scale system, how many years are you expecting to be continually bringing in fertility? Ah, like, um, I think like about three years would be a realistic number. And then you can just let it go. Yeah, but it's like, it's really hard to say too, but, uh, because we are still adapting like on the, on the species composition of the whole system. And that's the tricky, the tricky, the tricky part of it. Like what trees to use and what spacings to make it like easy, easy, manageable, right. And large scale to make the coffee harvest easy. There's so many components and so many plants that I don't know. For example, there are so many variables, right. For example, you have one plant and I don't know how this plant will behave like five years from now, you know? So it's really... And how it will interact with some other plant on the other end of the of the system. So it's really a really complex task, you know, to to simplify a syntropic system. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, in, in general, this is one of the big topics around syntropic is the complexity of it. And I wanted to get back to that soon. Um, but before we go into all these like very juicy topics, um, which are, I'd love to maybe set a bit more context about your system first so people can understand it a bit better. But to finish off this last conversation we were having, you, the, the factors that, may, that, that create an input independence system is just the species density and high diversity, or is it also the fact that these systems, you have to manage them more with more pruning, more organic matter cycling? You know, what, is, what are the factors that, that create, that make the system so, I mean, independent from inputs? 
No, it's the, yeah, it's it's the whole design of the system, right? It's so it's the diversity, right? The root diversity. So we because we haven't even started to talk about it, and that's what makes it so so complex too. It's, it's for us nowadays. It's all about the soil biology, right? And so for like a a good soil biology that can sustain the plants, you need like diverse root systems, right? Uh, diverse species. And, uh, of course, in the centropic system, we, we also always need to, to work with, uh, with the completely covered soil, right? Because the, the tropical heat and the sun, it's like really strong. And if you have like the uncovered soil, I don't know, soil biology just, just, uh, won't get better. Right. So, and in the centropic system, we, yeah, as you said, we start, we work with a lot of pruning like in order to manipulate the 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 shade of the system too or the sun intensity uh, that's especially important for the coffee but also like to create la a, a thick layer of, of organic material on the ground right that that creates lots of of humus and uh yeah and also the how do you say the the composition of the of the system by itself like in in terms of stratification like how how do i organize my stratification so for example coffee is a a, a tree species that needs a lot of shade in certain times of the year and so i need to organize various plant species that are above my coffee so the the various layers of the forest system so a tall layer then i need some emergent uh, layers and so that's yeah that's a complex task so maybe we can then go into describing a bit um um the the i mean you've told mm -hmm. us that your your main product is going to be coffee but i'm i'm expecting i mean i expect that you have other products mm -hmm. that you'll be generating as well based on the diversity that you implemented so when we're looking at now let's look at the scaled systems that you're planting um on so far 28 hectares if i understood well maybe tell us a bit about what products in total are you expecting to get out of that plot and we had to learn this like uh, for the large scale we really are only focused on coffee so the other the other stuff they are only like sub products you know for example for my my tall tall forest layer i for example i planted lots of um mango trees avocado trees but i'm not thinking about the the fruits like per se i'm thinking about the the organic material that the trees will generate me in in the long term you know so but still yeah we for example nowadays we have like tons and tons of bananas that are, that are producing and yeah, as i say the mangoes avocados uh are you selling those bananas or are you just keeping them for internal i mean i mean on 28 hectares i just imagine it's quite a lot yeah we are commercializing them and yeah using for uh we are using them for for feeding for example the the chickens too or yeah but we are trying to sell them and it's that's like the next big task you know commercialization because uh it's a really really interesting story too because 
the bananas they they started producing like this year in like really big amounts and so we are trying to sell them in the in the close by city rio verde is like one hour away and for and for like for this to compensate we need like we need to be selling like big amounts of bananas you know because of the the transport costs and everything and so but because our bananas they are like growing in the shade uh, they get like really how do you say it? they get like a thick skin and they grow like really big you know our bananas are, are huge compared to the the supermarket bananas and so we started talking to local distributors and showing our bananas say oh it's organic bananas we but we we are willing to sell them uh, for a conventional banana price and they say no we can't take your bananas because they are too big and too strange and uh like people will get uh, they won't they won't know what to do in the supermarket because they're not used to these types of bananas you know and so now we are talking to some uh some government guys there that uh that organize how do you say the uh the meals in in local schools you know and so now we are trying to to sell the bananas directly to the government you know maybe that will be an <laughs> a way but but it's really i don't know it's really you think about it it's really it makes no sense you know ah the optics of your banana is is different it's it looks it looks healthier it looks better but ah, we can't we can't buy it because it's out of the you know the, the standard we have you know. So now we are looking, I don't know, we are looking on for some other strategies. So it would be, for example, an idea to how do you say to to raise some some pigs too, like how do you say organic pigs, and then feed the bananas to them or invest more in, into chicken. You know, they eat eat bananas too. Yeah. But in the end, I only planted the bananas because of the organic matter. I wasn't at the beginning uh, thinking about, ah, I need to say, uh, sell this banana, you know. It's just a bonus. So I can really, I'm really relaxed about it. It's not like, ah, oh no, I'm going to go bankrupt if I don't, don't sell these bananas. You know, it's just a bonus. And what I am interested in is the... It's the organic matter from the from the tree, you know. I wanted to know as well about the the timber products that you've you've planted. Um, I, I thought I saw on Instagram that you mm -hmm. were planting some trees and managing them for 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 timber as well above the coffee. So we are princip. Uh, how do you say we are we are planting. Um, on the Instagram, you probably see that we are planting lots of eucalyptus. And, but the eucalyptus, for example, is, is only also for organic matter. So the eucalyptus, I have to say to like, as Mark said in the, in the other podcast, Centropic Agroforestry is all, also a successional system, right? So we, we planning to have some, uh, some type of species succession. So in these timber species, like eucalyptus is uh, the first one in the succession. So we plant like really lots of eucalyptus 
And like uh, in three or four years, I guess we won't have any eucalyptus anymore. They will be all chipped and go to the to the ground, to the soil. And then for the actual timber production, we planted uh, Australian red cedar and African mahogany. But they're only like the phase two in the succession. And then we also planted like lots of native species, which we uh, planted directly by seed or I still... Oh, I'm still completing the system like uh, with some really slow growing timber species that need like uh, 50, 60 years, you know, like all native species. Very interesting. And, and the objective here as well is to get one to create the dynamics of the system and get the succession growing and get the diversity yep. in there. But uh -huh. at the same time, you're hoping to get some wood out of that, right? I'm hoping to get some wood out of that. Yeah. Mm hmm. But uh, especially, but nowadays I'm only thinking about, the, for example, about the African mahogany and the Australian red cedar. Like, I don't know if if there's like a 50-year-old jatoba uh, uh, tree that's, that's like a really, really expensive wood here. If I would be able to cut it down because, I don't know, like 50 years from now and then you have like this beautiful tree. I'm I'm also not considering it in in the economic calculations, right? <laughs> so in the economic calculations, and I, I mean we love talking about economics on the podcast, so I like that you're bringing this this word up so often. You know, you're you're just looking at at your 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 you're basing your business plan on coffee, and then everything that happens beyond that is to be able to be dependent on. Uh, independent of inputs to be able to activate your soil to be able to create the successional dynamics that create that make the coffee thrive yep. is that correct if i can summarize it a bit in a schematic it's only way. it's only based on coffee i'm working i'm working only for the coffee and trying to get the the best atmosphere for my coffee plant without any without any inputs so how many of these other species excluding the, the seeds that you're planting of the native plants, just looking at, at the ones you mentioned, eucalyptus, the cedars, the mangoes, the avocados, bananas, how many of these of these support species do you have per coffee plant? In a way, I'd love to understand, like, kind of like, what's the, what's kind of the, the, the yeah, the, the density um, um, proportions between your main cash crop and the, and the others? Because some people may think, and there are some agroforestry systems where, you know, you have coffee, but then there's a support species planted on the edges, for um for for windbreaks or there's a few species dotted around the landscape which would also be considered agroforestry more conventionally so how does you know how how does maybe you can tell us a bit about how syntropic differs from that and give us a few more details ah uh, so like in in terms of trees like only for if we consider the yeah I gotta go in go into a little bit into the design so if you have like a coffee, a coffee line, right? So there, are, for example, there are two types of, of, of rows we work with. There are the coffee rows and the, yeah, let, let's call them service rows, tree rows. But in the coffee row, there are, there are trees too. So, but there are, but there are not any coffee plants. So it's really uh, somehow confusing. For example, only in the coffee row, I have like, one support plant for every for every coffee plant 
for for example i planned uh, a coffee plant like like every 65 centimeters and like in the spaces between i planned cassava i planted some beans and then i planted some uh some other tree that's called guapuruvu that's only for shading and for for organic matter too like more upfront so only in this line for example i have a successional structure and i also have like um how do you say the succession and the stratification right because the coffee is my low level plant then i have the cassava which is like a really fast growing initial plant that creates really good uh, soil conditions but and you don't harvest i could but i but i don't i just prune it like whenever the coffee needs more light i just prune it like for example the coffee it needs more light in the dry season right so in march i would go then prune all the cassava plants and then and then for example every six coffee plants i plant a guapurubu tree which uh, gets like a re- it's a really big tree and it has like um you can compare it somehow to to a palm tree it, it gets like uh it really diffuses the light you know so there's still lots of light coming to the ground but it like really filtered in a really cool way and really in a really good way for the coffee plant and it also this guapuru wood tree is like uh, the next step of succession because for example my cassava plants they normally will only survive like for two or three years and so they won't be in the system anymore but then the guapuru wood tree it's it's gotten like really strong and gets like lots of material and then lots of organic material and also uh, how do you say it gives gives like a complete closed rooftop of 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 uh how do you say of leaves that filters the sunlight you know so so on, so only in this line i have uh i have uh, uh normally for one coffee plant one support uh, specimen right and then again i have the the pure tree lines where i have the eucalyptus the mango the avocado but but just to get an idea i think um i made i made this math yesterday i for example per hectare i plant 2600 coffee plants and in total in total i have 7500 plants per hectare okay including the coffee so it's Ah okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a ratio like 2 to 2 to 1 for coffee, not for which are very dense uh, planted as you said every 65 centimeters, not for a mango tree planted every 4 meters. So it's Yeah. So there's more support species yeah, yeah. than there's Twice. coffee. Very nice, very interesting. Fascinating stuff. And mm-hmm. so I mean the next thing is to ask you have you experienced coffee health and vigor and growth similar to the banana experience that you're having with very healthy bananas very big fruit lots of them is is the coffee responding as you would expect or as you would like from this kind of these conditions with low inputs to no inputs shade etc 
Yes. <laughs> yes, I can say this. Um, especially, especially in the last two years, we like saw, I don't know, we, we saw like really good plant health, you know. And I can say this because coffee is a really problematic uh, plant like in our region because it's uh, in the dry season, it gets like really, really dry and it doesn't rain for for five months and there are lots of um, problems with the with the so-called coffee leaf borer it's like a it's like a pest that goes in there and, and eats all the leaves and it causes like huge um, how do you say desfoliation do you say it like like this yeah exactly and it's really interesting um, because uh, um, we also have a How do you say we have a consultant that helps us with the with the coffee issues on the farm, because coffee is like a, a really new area uh, era for uh, a really new area for us too, and like he he gives us some some hints about the plant physiology and like how to deal with the pests and diseases, and we also always like to get like the conventional view on the, on 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 the plant right, and he just comes in and sees like all the all these plants attacked by the coffee leaf borer and he's he would just say man if if this if you would have uh, so much of this pest on a conventional plot um there wouldn't be any uh, any leaves left on the on the coffee plant but for some reason with all the shading and because all the environmental conditions Our leaves they, they won't drop, so it, it doesn't cause any on any desfoliation on our plants. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. And um, have, have, has the coffee started producing? Yeah, this year actually we we had the first little harvest, and <laughs> but it wasn't a lot. Uh, it's it's only like for experimenting and um, try to. Yeah, because we have to learn about the, the the drying of the of the coffee fruits too, and how to process the coffee. So the little bit we we harvested, we we uh, we start started training how to process the coffee, right? And and uh, two two weeks ago we sent the first little sample to how do you say some. Uh, um, Uh, a roasting company, right? People that are really specialized in roasting, like for specialty coffee. And yeah, they said, wow, great quality. <laughs> they wouldn't expect this grade of quality like from the region where we are from, right? Nice. Well done. Congrats. That's really, that's really awesome. That's really, really cool to hear. And again, this is at now this coffee, how old is it? Four years old? No, no, the oldest plot, the oldest coffee is two and a half years old. Okay, so you're still bringing in a bit of, of fertilization and a bit of input at this stage, right? You're still helping the system transition. Yeah, but still uh, two and a half years, but the whole system is older, right? Because uh, another strategy is that we we plant the, the tree lines that... They haven't any coffee. We plant them one year in advance. Then we let the trees grow a little bit. And then afterwards we enter with the, with the coffee lines. 
because we discovered in our first in our first endeavors with the <laughs> with coffee planting we planted all at the same time and, and and tried to go low input and it just didn't work out like coffee trees would die and so we decided our first our first coffee plantation we replanted it like a year afterwards so it didn't work out and it's really it's really interesting to see like on the how do you say on the like on the on the borders of the of the plot sometimes you have some uh, some coffee plants that uh, don't get uh, any shade right and they get the same treatment like uh, from uh, same amount of compost same amount of everything and yeah they just don't like it they get like really sick and eventually don't produce so there's like really a direct uh, a direct dependence on the on the conditions you provide to the coffee and the amount of of external inputs you have to use right so more and more shade at this at, at the right time and I, i'm curious and of course it's a bit early to say so but what is your mm -hmm. like your best guess or what do you expect the yield at maturity of coffee to be as compared to conventional plot which is without shade lots of inputs to keep the plants healthy to keep them running I'm, I'm I'm convinced about quality differences. We don't need to go into that in so much, but you know, just looking mm -hmm. at quantity differences, do you expect your coffee, your agroforestry coffee, to produce as much? I want to, and your father-in-law <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> yeah, no, but seriously, I think the goal the goal for us is to to have the same quantity of production. Of course, we have a how do you say a lower density in terms of coffee plants right so in our our preferred system for example we have uh, 66 percent of the of the amounts of coffee plants compared to a conventional okay. system because we always have one one uh, tree line so yeah we want to to even the the conventional production in terms of production per coffee plant right and we also I, I didn't tell anything about this we uh, we have three types of systems too so we have um, this one system I told you about like it has one one tree line two coffee lines but we also planted a system where there is one tree line one coffee line and we planted a system where there's three tree lines uh, no, three coffee lines and one three ah, tree nice. line, right? And so we are we are testing three different systems too, and it's really it's really really interesting, like how the dynamics change and yeah, how the the coffee health changes too. If you <laughs> if you plant more service species uh, for the for the coffee plant, for example, this this one plot where we planted. Uh, one tree line, one coffee line, we have this really uh, extraordinary amount of, of uh, wood chips now. So we have on the, on the tree line, no, on the coffee line, we have this uh, maybe 
uh, let's say 10 centimeters thick layer of, of mulch. And it directly translates into the, into the, into the health of the coffee plants and into the, to the production and to the size of the fruit. And it's really interesting. Our, our goal is to find out, oh, what is more economically viable? This, this one tree line, one coffee line, one tree line, two coffee lines. And yeah, just time will tell. So. I asked on Instagram and I saw that you shared it as well. I asked people to tell us about what they wanted to ask you guys. And uh, we got lots of responses and everybody, 95% of the responses that we got were to understand the technicalities of, you know, how did you plant the system? How do you manage the system? It's crazy because people really are hungry for, and so are we with Etienne uh, on the podcast are hungry for these technical details, you know? Uh, how are we going to make it work? Because people, they, 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 they kind of, there's, there's a certain understanding now that agroecology uh, works uh, and, and is powerful and working with ecosystems and ecosystem processes is, is important. And we're seeing it on various different, you know, from coffee to pasture and animals to, you know, row crops. So the, the, what people want to know now is, you know, how does it work in practice? So you've taken a syntropic system and you've planted it at scale and, and quite fast. So maybe we can start going a bit into some of these details as to first question, how the hell did you plant so many trees with such high density? You know, we're talking about 7,500 plants per hectare in an efficient way. What was your strategy what was like kind of the evolution what did you learn on planting so many trees and making it work so i think the the most important part for for this type of system to work without any any herbicides for example you need lots of organic material at the beginning and so the first intuition was uh, to plant a really high yielding grass species on the whole plot so we planted uh, Mombasa grass on the 50 hectares and let it like grow for uh, for the for the rainy season and then we're mowing it on the during the dry season and then let it grow again on the on the beginning of the the next rainy season and then uh, we started to uh yeah to to mark these different rows you know like with the with the distance of we started the system with a uh a row distance of 4 meters and so we were marking it with the gps and a subsoiler so we went in with the subsoiler and then with uh tried somehow on uh, on this on this row to to kill the the Mombasa grass with, a, I think you call it a rotary tiller. Is that right? So you have this this clean row of like uh, eighty centimeters. Uh, it's like eighty centimeters wide, and then in these rows we we put in some uh, some limestone, some uh, stone meal, some compost. And then, uh, and then afterwards, the central part is we, we used, uh, I think you called, I even looked it up the, the word, do you call it? It's like a mechanical dented rake. 
a, is it a just a hay rake to, to rake hay and to yeah like a hay rake and so we, we so so we could cover all the all the rows with the Mombasa grass and so we we took care of the of the of the weeds right and that was effective as a strategy for weeds that really kept the weed uh... it, it's really effective if you have like a good uh, a good biomass at the beginning is it's the best thing you you can do and so it keeps weeding to to really a, a bare minimum and so you did that you applied you you mulched with the mombasa grass just after mombasa just grass. after making the line so you 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 pass the rotary tiller and you and you soon afterwards you pass the you mulch right and then and then all the trees for example we start with the with the tree lines and then we start planting eucalyptus um eucalyptus was all planted manually so we would just i don't know how how do you say it we would just put a stick in the soil make like the and then plant the plant a eucalyptus tree i don't know how you call it they're like these little tubes yes, you know on forestry tubes, tubes yeah. you just pull out the eucalyptus plant it and yeah we would like we would plant like i think five thousand trees a day with um about six persons so it's a really quick operation and then for all the avocado mango we would plant seedlings as uh, seeds yeah, and then for mahogany and Australian red cedar, we would plant them with these tubes too. So it's really a quick operation. And then for the coffee, the coffee is uh, a little bit special. So we would have the, the, the same technique where we have the rows, you know. And then um, for the coffee, we would call like specialized coffee planters from, you know, the... the <laughs> the region where where it is more common to plant coffee and they're just like insanely quick in in planting coffee manually so they, they just won't there are these tubes too right and they're just like three guys that take the tubes plant da, 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 and they make it like in, in a really quick fashion i think the last plantation we did um they planted Thirty thousand uh, of these coffee seedlings in one and a half days, four persons. Wow. Okay, nice. And and so so you've planted and the coffee as well. You you had enough Mombasa grass to get started to not need to import any mulch material. Is that is that correct? But still, sometimes of course there are some some spots where there isn't enough, and uh, especially in the first year. Weeding is uh, one of the principal activities, you know. There's lots of weeding going on all the time, especially during the rainy yeah. season. And so how many people do you have working on the on the weeding, for example? Do you have like a team of six people constantly working on the agroforestry? Oh, when we started, I think it was, we started with four people. Like during the planting, we also have, sometimes we have seven. And then during during the, the dry season, we maybe have four people but now, nowadays, we have a fixed amount of, of workers that are uh, uh, five, five persons, sometimes six. For 28 hectares. Yeah, for the 28 hectares. But only, yeah, and, and they are busy uh, like year round, like with, the, with weeding, with mulching. Yeah. 
And then, and then the, I have to say again, like when the system is implanted, then we have the Mombasa grass coming back, right? And here in the rainy season, you can cut the Mombasa grass six times. So it goes like it grows, it grows. And then we have this other machine. Um, if the guys are interested and want to take a look at it, I think there are lots of videos on Instagram. Yes, too. and I've seen it. It's a, it's um, a, um, it's a flail mower with side discharge. Oh yeah, a flail, a flail mower you call it. Yeah, and it has, it has like a conveyor yeah, yeah, belt. Yeah. You know, they're amazing. And it just puts the Mombasa grass. And the really awesome thing about this machine is um, that you can uh, um, put wood onto the onto the on, onto the field too like wood on with a diameter diameter of up to 15 centimeters and it will just chew the wood and spit it out on the side too <laughs> so it really this really yeah uh, how do you say it was really um it really helped to reduce the labor costs right so, for example, if we, we prune some, some of the trees and we have these little sticks, we just throw it all on the, on the field and then the machine goes over it and it spits it right out in, in little pieces. It's really... I, I may, I'm kind of in love with that machine. I've been following it for, well, you know, for six years now. I've been looking at it and, and dreaming of using it. haven't had the opportunity to use it yet, but um, hopefully it will happen soon. Going and shifting now to kind of the inputs that you used at the beginning, you mentioned uh, rock dust. I, I always and, calculate uh, for compost uh, meter. Uh, do you have an idea like of how meter much of compost row, you know? per hectare for the so for for, coffee? So, for example, for the coffee, uh, I applied uh, three kilos per meter of compost, and then the, on the rock dust, for example, depending on the rock dust, it was like half a kilo. So there's this. Uh, one rock dust that has like lots of phos phosphorus. The other one has more potassium. Very nice. And did you irrigate at all? Yeah. The first year we tried without irrigation and yeah, the coffee just died. No? It, but it was also because of the, what, what, what I told you at the beginning, because there was any, wasn't any shade for the coffee, but still we see in our region, even with like really old coffee trees, like in parentheses, like six year old coffee trees we, we planted at the beginning on our little plot. If it's not like a really, really dense, dense agroforestry, uh, it, it doesn't, for us, it doesn't work. Five months without rain and really dry air, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. Interesting. Yeah, the, the coffee would establish under a canopy of a, of a forest that's already gone through a certain evolution in terms of soil, microclimate. Um, so that's interesting. And so maybe now we can shift to how you manage the system um, nowadays. And again, there's some phenomenal videos of, uh, of your team um, working with, um, as you said, the, the side discharge flail mower with a chipper as well. So maybe you could tell us a bit about how you're managing at scale this quantity of biomass. You know, what's your, what's the strategy? What have you learned? And, you know, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, it's really a lot of work if you think about it. And, <laughs> but really have to get credit to the team because they're really awesome and, and like, <laughs> like doing all the work because it's, 
yeah, it's really an immense amount of work. But still, uh, the main strategy is like, um, there are lots of strategies because you, for example, in especially the coffee, right? If we look at the coffee again, he, uh, the coffee in at the beginning of the of the dry season, you need to open up light light for the coffee, right? Because he needs more and more light in order to in order to flower evenly and to get a good amount of flowers and fruits. So that fact is really interesting because if you if you look at um, of studies of shaded coffee that come from universities, for example. Ah, they planted coffee in shaded conditions, shaded by African mahogany. Da, da, da. The result is always, ah, it doesn't produce. It produces only 10% of the normal amount. But where's the error? The error is they did not work with uh, the dynamics of the shading, right? So you have a, a time of the year where you need shade and a time of the year where you need like almost uh, 90% sunlight, right? And so if you do that with coffee, it produces uh, really good. Mm, so and, and, if, and if this time comes, uh, oh, the coffee needs light. We go around in the coffee lines. We cut down all the, the cassava, all the guapuruvu trees, and then we shred them and uh, put the shredded material on the lines of the of the coffee like to to get the whole the whole row covered and at the at the beginning of the system we also worked with um how do you say do you say apical pruning of the eucalyptus like cutting the tops off yeah mm -hmm. so we we would go around cut the tops of the eucalyptus trees um and thinning the eucalyptus trees too because we plant them really densely so some we would cut at the top And some we would eliminate and then go around with the, with the wood chipper, ship the wood and where organic material is needed, we would, uh, we would put it on, on the row. And, uh, and nowadays, yeah, we see that this uh, apical pruning, it's like, if we, if, if you think about it at scale and you do it all manually, it's really lots lots of work so in our new systems we we designed them to to don't to don't do this anymore so we plant a certain amount for example of eucalyptus trees and then we make a plan in advance so after two years we will cut down this one after three years we will cut down this one and then after four years we won't have any eucalyptus anymore because then the african mahogany the cedar will be big, big enough to give like a, a canopy, a canopy layer to the whole system. So I don't need a eucalyptus anymore. And those African mahogany and the uh, Australian red cedar, I won't do any apical pruning. I just want them to grow big and big and they're planted in an amount per hectare that they won't influence on the, on the coffee production. Wow, that looks really smart, complex system. I and then I like it. comes the other part. And then you have to make sure that the, the tall layer of the forest system uh, develops really good too. Because from this point on, oh, I don't have any eucalyptus anymore. All my organic, the, the, big, the big amount of my organic material comes from the tall layer. Because I won't touch the canopy layer anymore, which was the eucalyptus. 
but now it doesn't exist anymore. So now my organic material comes from the mangoes, the avocados. So you're, but you're, you're pruning them at, at height. You're pollarding them still. When they are big enough, the mangoes and the avocados. No, I could prune them in like, uh, two meters. I don't need, need any, because you could, you could prune them even in, in half a meter of, of, of height. And they will just come back like really, really strongly and, and grow again. And so, so the whole idea of the, of our new system design is to, to don't need any, how do you say, um, ladders, any ladders that you, so you won't, won't have to go up on some ladder on some platform, you know? Okay. So everything is kind of accessible, uh, for human height to be able to easily prune them intensely. Okay. And then you've, you've, you're still going to have lots of biomass and organic matter, right? So I've, so I've seen, you've been using a, a chipper to process that organic matter. Are you happy with that system? Yeah. Especially the, the wood chipper was the first, uh, our first machine for the processing of biomass, but yeah, we, I'm always thinking it's, it's a really slow process, right? If you cut down the eucalyptus, ah, you cut down, I don't know, 2000 trees and you have to put them in the wood chipper. And sometimes there's a problem with the wood chipper. It's, it's for a big system. I think it's not the future. You know, I think, uh, maybe the future is the, a really robust flail mower. So you throw everything on the ground and just go over it with the flail mower. And I've seen some uh, that they use in. Uh, another coffee system that that are really really robust and you just throw like a, a big chunk of wood on there and just just goes through and bah <laughs> disappears you know there's some uh, uh machines called forestry mulchers and yeah they, they need a big tractor though uh they need uh quite a i think i think a minimum would be 90 horsepower but i, I think I'd, i'm not even sure that's enough mm -hmm. and they have like a, a, a teeth system which isn't with hammers it's with little teeth that gradually like eat into the wood and so it, it you know it doesn't require it doesn't completely smash it up it, it really just like chips at it and mm -hmm. they seem really interesting but uh, again they're quite a big piece of equipment in terms of i'm thinking in terms of compaction passing it often but but how many times do you pass in your lines with this type of material yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really not what we want, right? Because compaction is really an issue. And another option is just cut down big chunks of wood, you know, and just leave them on the rows. It's another option that we do sometimes. Ah, just leave it there. Just cut it with the chainsaw and leave it there because ah, it will get decomposed someday. You know, it just takes a lot, a lot of more time. A two and a half years of coffee growth. Uh, mm -hmm. um, um, evolution are you still weeding or is that completely is that not you don't do that anymore i'm still weeding but it's uh a lot less you know it's just like some yeah, sometimes it's just normal that you have like i don't know some grass grows between some coffee plants or something but it's it's reduced really to a to a minimum uh, yeah, but there's, but there's another dimension also that I want to talk about is the, the, the pest, the pest and disease control, right? Because it's, it's a transition system still. 
and it's not it's not totally stable so at the beginning we have lots of problems with uh how did i say the leaf borer for example no that's yeah that's uh, probably the only problem and we we still use some inputs that we produce on farm so we use lots of of fungi that we produce on farm and then we put them into a sprayer and and spray the spores and so the spores will stick to the to the leaf borer and then they will just kill it so but i think what fungi do you use ah we use bavaria bavaria uh the other one is called metahizu i don't know how it is in in english okay but we use lots of fungi on the on the farm that we uh, produce in in our own lab here and we use them in the in the conventional fields too okay that's amazing and so how how many times would you be intervening with a sprayer inside your syntropic system ah at the, in the new system you see uh it gets a, a, attacked a lot more so at the beginning Uh, the leaf borer it only attacks like during the dry season, and if we talk about like a five months dry season, we go we spray it like three times. But then our in our oldest system, we only sprayed this year one time, and we saw uh, it just stabilized, you know. And there we have we have another component. So now we adapted our our composition of the tree species. We plant, for example, more inga trees, uh, and they have the they have the property that they when they flower they attract like these predator wasps, and they also attack the leaf borer. And so we found that out like two years ago, and now we are including these tree species like heavily in our in our new plantations. And it really, wow. It's really awesome. It really make it really makes a big difference. So, the of course here the aim is to to in the future to have a stable system, and so we won't have to to enter with the sprayer anymore, right? Fascinating. And so, if you, if you look at the work that you're doing on your two and a half uh, old system, would you say that most of the work is managing biomass? Is that kind of like where most of your team is 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 active or because uh, you're, you're not you're, you're harvesting a bit but not yet a lot just understand a bit like the proportion of work that you guys are engaging in yeah i would say half of the work half of the work is managing biomass then uh, another let's say a quarter of the work is managing weeds manual weeding right And then the other part are just, uh, uh, for example, um, yeah, harvesting, banana harvesting, coffee harvesting. So, but uh, yeah, as you said, the, the biomass managing is, is the principal, principal part of the activity. So I, I'm I'm curious about the the harvesting process and that you're expecting. I mean, now that you've got smaller smaller yields, they've just started. But when they pick up and you start to have bigger quantities, and excuse my ignorance in terms of coffee mm -hmm. production systems, can you mechanically harvest this? Are you want will you will you be using mechanical harvesters for coffee, or is does everything go by hand? So the system is designed. Uh, 
for to have the possibility to use a harvester, a coffee harvester. But if you use a coffee harvester, you you have to know. Oh, okay, it's a heavy machine. There will be compaction. Branches of our loft coffee will break off. So it's like really how do you say it's a rough method to yeah, to manage the harvest. So in the last years we have been thinking now, oh, is it worth it uh, <laughs> to use a coffee harvester? And and I think uh, if we get a good compensation out of the coffee, if we get quality coffee, bio organic coffee, quality good quality. I think we don't need the coffee harvester. We would prefer to have the manual harvest because you get more quality out of it, you know. So uh, and this this yeah, tell me. Mm -hmm. Sorry, finish off your thoughts. And also less losses because normally if they use a coffee harvester, uh, they are like uh, let's say twenty percent of the of the of the coffee fruits they will end up on the soil. And so the, what, what they do in a conventional coffee farm, they will like uh, really clean up the area between the rows, like really, uh, I don't know, like really uh, get out all the weeds, get out all the plants and, and there's nothing, nothing anymore. So it's only bare soil. And so the, the grains that get lost, they will, they, they pass with another machine. That's like, uh, how do you say, uh, yeah, sweeper or it will get sucked in by a vacuum. And so it will suck in the, the rest of the, of the grains and this method, uh, like you can hear it's, it's really aggressive because it, yeah, you have to get rid of all the vegetation between the coffee lines and that, and all the mulch theor theoretically, right? So it would be, it would be for us a stupid thing to do, like during the year to invest in mulch and then, ah, let's put the mulch away and then pass with the coffee harvester and then, yeah, get the rest from the grains from the ground. So if you do it manually, uh, there's no necessity because, uh, you, you won't have this, this much of a loss in terms of, of, of coffee fruits. That's very interesting. So it's kind of this mechanical harvesting method is slightly incompatible with with some of your agro agroecological techniques. Yes, um, you'd oh, have really? to serious. You'd have to think about some serious changes to the system. And also, what I was thinking about is that all the support species that are pollarded relatively high mm -hmm. uh, in the coffee lines, you'd have to have them really low, and without any. You know, they'd have to be like kind of sticks so that the coffee harvester could pass on top of the coffee lines. You see what I mean? It would ha it would change the management of the support species. It's interesting that you mention it because uh, we have to do it anyway. Like, for example, uh, in April, we will, I told you about the guapuruvu tree that looks like a palm tree. In order to get light, we cut it completely off. So there will only be the stick left, right? And so it would be compatible for a coffee harvesting machine to pass over it. So even with the manual harvesting, we will cut it off the same way, you know? So for example, I cut it off in April and now we are in, in September. Now we, the, 
the branches that are coming out of the Guapuru tree, they, are, they, they already grew like one meter. And so by in, in two more months, I think there will be this closed rooftop we talked about, you know. I'm going to pick your brains a bit more here. What do you see as the as the main, um, um, let's say, opportunities for mechanization beyond the mulcher which you mentioned to uh, to, to be able to to you know have these entropic systems work at scale more efficiently? What kind of machines are you talking about with your teams or that you're hearing about coming from the different centropic practitioners, consultants, experts in, 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 in Brazil? What, what are the next steps for mechanization of these systems? Well, I think for us, what we feel right now, it's really only about the, the pruning, you know, and the pruning. And sometimes you have to, how do you say you? You have to get rid of the side branches of the eucalyptus. So it would be nice to have like really a fast way to, to cut down these side branches because we all do it manually with, uh, um, um, how do you say, with the machete and, uh, and some like tools, you know, so the guys really do it manually. Would be really nice to have like a faster way to do it, like all the pruning activities. And... And I think for our system, especially, that's about it. I really don't see. It's all about the the, the biomass managing. For the other parts, I don't see any any special necessities. Like for coffee harvesting, if we want to do it mechanically, we could do it. And yeah, it's it's not really. I don't know. For me, it's it's only the part of the of the biomass managing. Okay, that's really interesting. So I don't see it like lots of people talk about ah because we can't scale it up because of oh, the we don't have the machines or something. I, for our system especially, I don't see it this way. But if we if we talk about um, I don't know some other systems based on other other crops, maybe yeah maybe it would be different. But in coffee, traditionally, you, you use lots of manual labor. So fascinating, very cool. So um, we talked a lot about the more practical sides, etc. I do have a few a few questions for you um, relating to um, to start off with commercialization, and you already brought this up um, five minutes before. And you know, I'm curious when you're looking at your coffee, are you going to be? Are you thinking of marking up the price? based on quality, based on the fact that it's a syntropic agroforestry coffee and you think you can, you know, how are your, or how is your system going to influence the way that you're going to commercialize it and also take into account that if you do manage to sell at a higher price, at a premium, you're probably going to be able to take, cut out the mechanized harvesting, which is going to be mm -hmm. able to meet your soil and regeneration objectives. So, you know, what's, what are you guys talking about internally? Uh, when it comes to commercialization internally i guess um to get a good pr uh, good price out of coffee i think uh it's all about quality you know and so without quality i think even with the best story ah centropic agriculture da, 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 i think it if it's a bad coffee you <laughs> you won't get a good price so it all depends it really all depends on 
if the syntropic system gives me a good quality fruit, coffee fruit. And so that's one part. And then, uh, yeah, of course we have an organic uh, certificate. In Brazil, normally this gives you um, bit, uh, like a, a 20% price advantage, 20, 30%, it's not a lot. But if we talk about like specialty coffee, ah, with a good, uh, really good quality, we talk about a hundred percent price advantage, right? So double the price, triple the price. And there's no, there's no limit. So, and that's why I why I told you like it was a really good a good uh, good news for us that that on the last week we we got this approval. Ah, your coffee really. Is great, you know. <laughs> so it was like a really a key element because if they would have said, "Ah, oh, no, your coffee, uh, <laughs> it doesn't drink really well," it would be devastating, you know. That's that's such good news, um, um, yeah. and really, I said it before, but again, congrats because it's really something special. In a, and what kind of markup? As compared to conventional coffee, what kind of markup can you expect when you have that quality? What's the, let's assume a markup. It's a, a how. Um, let's say how much more will you will you be able to to get paid for per kilo? Or are we talking about? You know, you said there's a markup of twenty thirty percent for organic, but if you have some really high quality decent coffee, can you expect fifty percent, a hundred percent more? You know, what, I want to try and understand the, mm-hmm. the scale of, of or how, how much flexibility it's going to give you economically. Yeah, I think uh, you can easily, if, if you really have a good coffee, you can easily expect the 50 to 100% markup. But then you have to consider that, of course, not all of your production will be this good quality because there's also always like, uh, how do you say uh inferior quality coffee like all these um how do you say uh, my vocabulary so some of the coffee you you harvested and it has like some damage you have to do like really uh, a separation process so i would say like for specialty coffee like maybe only 60 to 50 percent of your production qualifies maybe and then the rest will be conventional coffee no, but uh, if you have uh, a really good coffee and a really good story behind it, because story is also an important factor, right? Especially when you talk to uh, small scale, uh, um, how do you say, these cafeterias that have like the, um, a roasting operation, you know, it's really important to have this, to have the story too and the, and the certificates, right? And I think in terms of story, uh, syntropic agriculture is really like people are looking exactly for this. It has, it's the complete package for me. It's a CO2, (laughs) CO2 neutral, or at least, at least CO2 neutral and it's organic. And um, if it works out totally independent, it has everything. Reforestation. Yeah, it takes yeah. a lot of boxes. Yeah. Very interesting. And are you guys planning on um, having your own processing facility on site eventually when the yield goes up or 
and, and you know, being able to really integrate vertically there with the coffee. What do you mean by processing, like roasting? Yeah, I mean, having the whole um, um, cleaning, um, se se separating the skin from the pips and then, um, um, and you know, the whole kind of um, transformation processing chain. Uh -huh. No, that's actually uh, something we will have to do because, um, for example, if we harvest our coffee, organic coffee, and then we ship it out to some, uh, after we dried it, of course, and then we ship it out to some processing facility. And I don't know any, any nearby processing facility that's uh, certified organically. So we would lose the, the organic label. So it's kind of mandatory for us to um, to take this step. So yeah, we we will have to invest in it really. And then yeah, but the the principal idea is do the the processing on farm and uh, sell the green beans. But I re I'm really interested to to get into roasting too. It's really interesting. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. But then, for example, roasted coffee would only qualify to to sell in Brazil, right? Nationally, because of crazy of crazy taxes. If you want to export roasted coffee to Europe, oh, it's impossible because of import taxes. I want to um, pick your brains on on one last subject um, and. I'm very curious as to, I mean, you're from Europe, you, mm -hmm. you know, the European context, and I'm curious as to how you think a centropic system is, can at, at, at scale. So, um, you know, you're, you're looking now at 28 hectares, you're going to be scaling up to, to 50, right. And gradually, uh, so that's quite a, a large farm. If we even just look at, you know, a tree crop farm, it's, 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 it's a significant, uh, uh, um, acreage. And so do you think that these systems are applicable and would work in a European context? And could you a bit like give us, you know, your thoughts on this, because you're actively there, you're managing it, you're managing your teams, you're, you know, you're right in the middle of it. Um, so really curious as to what you could share to our listeners on that front. Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. First, I think if I would do it in Europe, maybe it would be really, I, I would need lots of more strength because it, it would be, I don't know, not depressing, but plants are growing sl so slow there if you compare it to tropical agriculture. Here it's so rewarding. You, ah, you plant an eucalyptus tree and after one year, ah, it's like eight meters. <laughs> I don't know how it would work there. It would be really slow. And then, as you said, still, even with, uh, with the best machines and all, all this stuff, you need uh, really lots of manual labor. And you need people there observing the system daily. So, so you, can, you can design a proper system, right? And I don't know how it would work in, in Europe. Where, where do you get your knowledge from? Because, you know, it, clearly this is a, a much more complex system than a traditional orchard yeah. and um, requires 
another set of skills that we discussed in our previous interview with Mark, you know, a lot of observation, some, you know, being very intimate with your, mm -hmm. with your, with your system ultimately. And so, you know, you've also started in 2013 without prior experience with syntropic systems. So in agricultural terms, it's relatively, um, um, well, very relatively young system. You've also been doing it for, for four years on your, on your, in your context, you, you're pioneering in your region, you know, you're developing, you're finding the solutions, you're, you're, you're kind of, kind of breaking through the ice for the other people that come behind you. So it's a really tough situation to be in. And yeah. so, you know, how, where do you get your information, your knowledge? How do you make it work as, as it works in your Instagram, which seems like it works. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the basic knowledge you get in, uh, in agroforestry courses, like centropic agroforestry courses here, like the basic, uh, understanding of stratification succession, right. And reading a little bit about species, but I think the two, the, the one most important thing you said already, it's observation. And what we see, especially in conventional agriculture and especially in Europe too, like, uh, the trend is the opposite. It's like, uh, like nowadays, uh, the, the, the big companies are trying to sell these, these iPads, you know, where you can track your tractors from the city and, and use drones, you know, so all the technology nowadays, it's uh, developing to get the farmer away from the field, right? And I think it's especially the, the wrong direction. People have to get back back to the fields, like feel the soil, observe. And observation is, is like the, it's, it's the principle, uh, it's the most important thing you have to do in a syntropic system. So if not, you will lose track and it just won't work. And another big, big factor is you have to, you have to be good at coping with deception <laughs> because at the beginning uh, you, you plan some stuff. You think this, uh, you have these romantic thoughts about ah, thriving forests and stuff. And in almost all the cases it's, it's at the beginning, it won't work that way. You will be totally disappointed and then you have to move on. You have to, be really dynamic. Ah, maybe I try this, try this, try this. It's all about try and error, I guess. And really, because nowadays, ah, with the basic knowledge about some species you could use, um, you just have to try, try and make errors and, and uh, try to look also at local ecosystems, see what's growing there, try some different species and stuff and, always trying to improve the system and another big component we we didn't talk about like in our in our case we have to say are oh, we we are managing a system for about trying for five years now now we will harvest the first good results we in, I, I think in a in the modern language you would say we have an angel investor so for example, the convention in agriculture is paying for our project now because, you know, we didn't have any returns yet and had some, had some uh, bad experience, some failures at the beginning. So that's a, that's a really special situation we have. So 
it would be really different ah if i would have taken a, a credit from a bank for example and i have to repay it in in five years i would be i would act like differently you know for sure but this is part of the work of pioneers as we said people that are developing solutions in a local context the next people that want to start a centropic project your neighbor that said i'll rent you the machines to to, to take down your orchard. Well, maybe in a few years, you'll see it works. He'll be like, well, come and help me do this. He's going to start on a completely different basis um, with a completely different set of, uh, of, um, of, 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 let's say, yeah, with an, a different ability to, to make the right decisions. Oh, I, I just want to take on, because you were asking at the beginning, uh, ah, what people are saying, like, and I told you this example about the one guy who wanted to rip out our trees and so we could plant soybeans again, right? <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays I have to say uh, the agroforestry, it had like a, a spillover effect on our conventional farm. So we started working on the agroforestry and really concentrating about uh, on this agroforestry system. But then we really, because on the system, we are only working part-time, like half a day. The other half day we were working on the conventional farm. And then it just makes no sense to to do on the one side business as usual. And on the other side, ah, we have this perfect system, you know. And so we really rapidly try to make some changes in the in the conventional farm too. And so nowadays, for example, we don't use any any more chemical fertilizer, we don't use any more fungicides. And um we really have tremendous cost reduction on the conventional farm and really amazing results. And uh, yeah, all because yeah, it started with the agroforestry and then it spread like, a, how do you say, uh, <laughs> a good virus, you know? And so nowadays the, the, we are really working hard to get um, a really sustainable soybean production, for example, and corn production. So when we had this, when we had talked before, you mentioned that you had quite large reduction in input costs without compromising yield in your, so this is something that needs to be repeated in, to our audience because it's another example of the power of regenerative agriculture capable when done correctly and in, in the form of a slow transition has some pretty spectacular results for farmers, especially demonstrated in, in, in row crops. Yeah. So yeah, just to summarize, like, I think it was, it's the fourth harvest now that we don't use any more chemical fertilizer. So we, again, all credit to my father-in-law. We told him, ah, we could, we could change up the fertilization program. Why don't we use compost? For example, like uh, chicken manure, rock dust could we uh, make a little test plot like uh, 30 hectares and he said um no let's do it on the whole area first year <laughs> and so uh, it's kind of crazy and so the first year he, we just cut out all the all the chemical fertilizer and changed to organic fertilization and ah you know what let's not use fungicides anymore Okay, we didn't use any fungicides anymore, and but we had to substitute them with some uh, 
uh, started working with bacteria, started working with, uh, uh, with other fungi that we would apply on the fields and uh, surprising results. We like in the second harvest, we, uh, we did our record production, right. Of, of soybeans by with, uh, reducing the cost by 40%, the whole operation costs. And it was really amazing. And now we're going into the to fourth harvest harvest with the, the same program and always trying to reduce more and more of the chemical part and it's working. It's really, and the last news we got, like, uh, the guy that takes the soil analysis, he said, Oh, your, your phosphorus tripled in the last two years without applying any significant amount of, of phosphorus. So how to explain that? And now we know this is a hopeful message. It gives yeah. a lot of hope, you know, when you hear these stories and, and this is without a complete change in paradigm, um, but just massive improvements in, in, in practices uh, without yield reductions. This is what's going to scale regenerative agriculture. And that's awesome because in Brazil, really lots of farmers uh, are going into the same direction, you know, using rock dust, compost, focusing on soil biology, focusing on, on, how do you say, green cover, like mixtures of plants during the dry season to get the soil cover, to maintain soil biology. And all like mainly because of uh, the cost pressure, right? Because uh, fertilizers, they got really expensive. Everything got so expensive. And so these guys, they don't have any um, subsidies, right? And so they have to find a way out. And so many, many of these, uh, these farmers, they, they go into that direction, the more uh, regenerative approach. Not because uh, society wants it, because they are forced to do it <laughs> because of the, cost, of the cost pressure. And at the same time... Uh, they go back, uh, how do you say, how do you say they somehow go back to traditional practices and like learn to, to observe again, take the soil into the hand, observe with a microscope and stuff. And so it's really awesome to see what's happening here for, for many farmers. That's amazing. That's really cool. That's a beautiful way to finish this interview. Um, that's agroforestry, your agroforestry adventure that you started and project that you started there is, is, is kind of having, um, emanating, um, and creating change throughout the 2,800 hectares that you guys are, are managing. So that's really cool. Um, but Daniel, thank you so, so much for, for coming on and sharing your experience, uh, with us, uh, today, uh, an absolutely fascinating talk. Um, and I know that this is going to be a very practical talk and I know that this is going to be very much appreciated by our listeners. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you too. And sorry for my English sometimes for my vocabulary, <laughs> but thank you very much for having me too. It's been, it's been very good. Awesome. Really cool. All right. And then we'll, we'll see you next time then. Well, in uh, three years down the line, when you've got max, when you when your your coffee yeah, has perfect. reached maturity, we'll that. check in again, <laughs> and uh, and see what's up. 